We're glad that you're here. So we are planning this uh, new members and new believers class. We want this to be an eight-week class. Um, So we're planning the next eight weeks on Friday nights, uh, with the exception of the night of conference, uh, the week of, I believe that'll be the 9th of October, uh, since I'll be in Arizona, so we'll skip that week. But for the next nine weeks, we'll be studying together. And I've laid out a whole new... Oh, thank you. I've laid out a whole new uh, outline uh, for our curriculum, so I'm excited about it, uh, and I hope that you will be too. I want to give you kind of a roadmap of where we are going. So tonight we're going to start with the topic of new birth, new life. Next week we're going to look, we're going to begin looking at the topic of theology, so that'll be three parts, and uh, we're simply going to be explaining the doctrine of the Trinity, starting with God the Father, God the Son, and, of course, God the Holy Spirit. So week five is we're going to take a turn as we go to Imago Dei. That's a Latin phrase which means the image of God. In other words, man created in God's image. That's the week we're going to be learning about how God made us and what that means for us. We were made in the image of God. Uh, week six will be about revelation. This is how we learn about God. And so, uh, how we hear from Him, how we communicate with Him. And then week seven, we're going to talk about the church. This is a very, uh, that'll be a very fun topic. Uh, the history of the church, short history of the church, and, uh, and then also a history of our fellowship and where we fit into the puzzle. And then finally, week eight will be about Christian living, more than conquerors. So that's going to encompass morality, ethics, and also looking to the future of what God has in store for us, eschatology, and future time. So we're going to try to condense these as much as we can, and I don't want to spend three hours on each week, of course, but uh, a a couple of things that I want to give you a heads up about. Each of these classes is going to have uh, homework that I would like for all of you to be doing at the same time. There's going to be some reading involved uh, and some memorization as well. So, uh, so I will give each week, I'll, uh, the very end, we'll have um, an assignment for you to accomplish. And uh, our first assignment for the first four weeks is we're going to read through the first four books of the New Testament. We're going to read simply read through not, not necessarily studying, but just read it through like you would read a book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and get kind of the overall big picture of the gospel stories. So I'm excited about that. I always uh, get excited to, to read the gospel accounts. So uh, very good. So let's jump in. Again, we are starting here on week number one, new birth and new life, and what that entails. And I want to begin right here. And uh, you can, uh, if you've been through something like this, um, uh, and you understand, um, uh, just stick with us. I know these are some basic things, but these are also some very, very powerful things that we have to get a real clear understanding of. And we're going to start right here with this question, what is the gospel? So I want to open this up, and I want to ask you guys, what do you believe is the gospel? What's the meaning of the word gospel, and uh, what does it mean to you? I would love to hear any uh, any comments or suggestions. What do you say? What is your answer to this question? What is the gospel? 
That's exactly what the word means. The word comes from a derivative that means good news. And so uh, there's a lot of confusion about the word gospel because it's not just a style of music. Uh, we have gospel music, of course. It's not just a, um, you know, a, a genre, but uh, the word gospel literally means good news. And so we're going to break down why the gospel is good news for us. And also, we're going to uh, give you... A, the tools that you will need to be able to share this gospel and make it work. All right, so here's where we need your assistance to read some scriptures. So there are five scriptures up on the screen right now. The first one, I want, you to, I want somebody to read both of those as a contrast. So I need a volunteer to read the first two scriptures. Who's that going to be? Amanda, so I need Genesis 126 and Romans 3, verse 23. We're going to read those back to back. I'll need someone to get that second line, Isaiah 59, verse 2. Oscar's going to get that for us. John 3, 16, familiar scripture. Patrick is going to get that. And then I need Romans 10, verse 9. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. All right. So the gospel can be understood through these four very basic principles. Uh, the reason that the gospel is good news will be understood if you understand these four things. And so we're going to read what the Bible has to say about it, and uh, I want to just say if you do have any questions along the way, feel free to raise your hand. I would love to address any questions. Uh, one of the things that we're going to be really careful about in this series is uh, we want to be careful not to run down rabbit trails, okay? Everybody know what a rabbit trail is? Pastor Mitchell is famous about talking about rabbit trails. So... Um, uh, I get to decide if something's a rabbit trail or not. <laughs> That's part of my responsibility as a leader. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that your questions are unimportant. And so if you do have a question that we're not going to be able to have time to answer, I want to ask everybody to write it down, uh, to store it, because we are going to have time in each session for questions uh, that we may not have time for in the, in the moment. Okay, so the gospel message, it starts out with the understanding of the fall of man, and that's going to be really important when we study uh, Imago Dei, the, 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 um, the study of man, uh, but for right now, we just want to get the contrast of how God made us versus how we ended up, all right? So to understand that, Genesis one twenty six, and then read Romans 3.23, back to back. Okay, so God created us to have authority, God created us to have dominion, God created us to rule over the created world, uh, and God created us in His image. He created us not to die. There's a whole lot in there that we're going to study later on, but compare that now to Romans 3.23, where we were compared to where we are. Was that it? Okay, so we have all sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, I think that's the amplified version you're reading. Okay, so not only have we fallen, but we are continually falling uh, away from God. So that means we are in a fallen state. We have fallen from grace. We have fallen out of God's 
favor, and that is because of sin. Can somebody give me a good definition? What is sin? To know what is right and not do it. Does somebody want to add to that? Yeah. Missing the mark. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great understanding of the Greek word for sin. It's like a, an archer aiming at a target, but the bow and the arrow is actually warped, so no matter how carefully you aim, it's impossible to get a bullseye. That's a very good definition of what it means to live in sin. No matter how hard we try, the, the condition of our lives is so warped that we cannot hit the mark. Okay, somebody else want to add to that? Do we have a good de- definition of sin? Anybody else? Sin, sorry? Transgression. It's the simple meaning, simple understanding is disobedience against God's will, right? Something God wants, we do the other thing. And uh, that's, that's common to all of us. And what does sin cause? Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities are separated from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not listen. Right. So this is, uh, this is common sense stuff, right? That sin brings separation between two individuals. So if I walk up and I slap Patrick in the face, pow, that's going to have an effect on our relationship, isn't it? There will be a separation. We say words that separate us from people, right? We, we offend people, we hurt people, and that causes separation. Well, this is also true with God. Of course, God never sins against us, but we sin against God. And when that happens, there is separation. And so in that state of sinfulness, the next step of the gospel is what God did for us. And that is, of course, the famous gospel message in John three sixteen. Who had that one? Patrick. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's right. So did we do anything to deserve what God did for us? No, in fact, what we did is deserving of death hell, and the grave. And so that's what shows how much God loved us. God's love is not for the righteous, but it is for the sinner. And that's what, that is the good news of the gospel, that God still loves us enough to send His Son to die for us. And then the last part of the gospel is our response to what God has done. And that is in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Okay? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that is repentance and faith. A confession is, is words that come out of your mouth. Words, the, the thought in the Greek language, is you are agreeing with God about what He already knows. That you say, yes, God, I am a sinner and I'm in need of your mercy. And when you confess, you repent. Can somebody tell me what repentance means very quickly? Yeah. Change, okay? Want to add to that? The turning around, very good. So the thought in the Greek language, again, is the thought of a U-turn, the thought of a 180 degree. So I'm, I'm going down the road, I'm heading toward destruction, 
and I make a decision, I don't want to be destroyed, God save me, by His grace and mercy, we make a turn, 180. It's not a 360. You don't want to do 360 because you still go the same direction. No, you want to do a 180 and you want to go back. Instead of running away from God, we are going to begin running toward Him. And that's what repentance means. And together with faith, faith simply means trust. Uh, let's not get too super spiritual about what faith is. Faith is not just some uh, acceptance of some theological truth, but faith is action. Faith is a decision to put your trust in God, in His Word. And when we do that, the Bible says we will be saved. Confession is made unto salvation, and when we believe into our heart. Okay, any questions so far? This is the good news of the gospel. And this is the point of everything that we do as a church, is to, uh, to bring a gospel message to a lost generation. All right, so having that understanding of the gospel. I'm, uh, I, we've come here tonight with the understanding that, uh, that those of us who are here, that we have at least understood the, the gospel, and the question is, okay, what's next? What is next? And that, that's what we're going to look at here, first steps in our faith. And I want to talk about sacraments. Okay, does any, can anybody tell me what is your definition of the word sacrament? It's related to sacrifice, isn't it? Same root word. What is meant by the word sacrament? Hmm? How about things that are sacred, things that are holy, things that are set apart? So a sacrament is literally a holy action. It is something that, uh, that is not done just for our comfort or just for, um, because we want to do things. Sacraments are things that are done by the church. So properly executed, sacraments are things that can only happen within the context of a church. And there are two sacraments uh, that, that are really crucial for us to understand. The first one, of course, is water baptism. And we were so uh, grateful to experience uh, Oscar's water baptism just on Wednesday. This is one of the holy sacraments that has been given to the church to mark the salvation uh, of, of someone coming out of the world and coming into the kingdom of God. So I think I have all of the scriptures, all the rest of them anyway, up on the screen. So I'm just going to ask somebody to read those out loud if we can. Who would like to read? Well, let's just go around the room. Nisha, why don't you start? Mark 16, verse 16. Okay, so uh, let me ask you, is baptism just a good suggestion from the Lord? No, what is it? It's a requirement. It's a commandment. And so uh, this is considered to be our very first step of faith. And you never see in the Bible, you never see someone baptizing themselves. So that means it is an activity, a function of the church. The other thing that you never see is you never see someone who gets baptized before they get saved or before they confess, before they repent. It always happens, confession, repentance first, and then baptism. And so the reason that's important is uh, when it comes to how do we practice water baptism, 
Uh, we want to see a genuine conversion in people. We want, we want to see that water baptism is an outward sign of something that's already happening on the inside. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol of leaving the old man behind and the new man coming out of the water uh, to live for Christ. There's a picture in the Old Testament of uh, the uh, children of Israel as they are being rescued out of Egypt. They are, they, are, uh, they are set free from their bondage, right? Pharaoh says, okay, you know, we've suffered enough. Your people, let them go. Let them go worship in the desert, right? And Moses is leading them out. And so they've come out from their sin, haven't they? But then there comes some trouble, right? First, they turn around and they see Pharaoh and his armies chasing after them. That would be pretty horrifying. They get freaked out. They are now up against the Red Sea. So God does a miracle to protect them with the fire, the pillar of fire from heaven. And Moses takes his staff and opens the Red Sea so that they can pass through. The Bible says it's on dry ground. This is also symbolic for water baptism. And they're passing through the water. What's interesting about that is that after they get out on the other side, the water closes in and Pharaoh's army has gone into pursuit. So there's a couple things that happen. Number one, the enemy is destroyed through water baptism. The second thing is that now the path forward is clear. In other words, even if they want to go back to Egypt, they cannot because the water has closed in behind them. The only path now is forward into destiny. And so this is a picture of what water baptism does for us. Secondly, the sacrament that is commanded to us by the Lord is in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Oscar, you want to read that for us? Okay, so this is the, uh, traditionally the second sacrament that is given to us directly by Jesus. This is something that we practice as a church. We, uh, in our church tradition, we do this uh, once a month. We do this typically on, in the first Sunday of the month. And then we also, uh, if we have special occasions like a Christmas or an Easter service, we will also do the Lord's Supper there as well. Nothing, uh, can, can somebody tell me why it's so important? For communion to take place, and, and what does it mean to you personally, Patrick? Sure, I mean that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Uh, somebody else want to add to that? Right. Yeah, it's an example of um, uh, what does it say in Corinthians? Uh, we, we eat his flesh and we drink his blood and we, uh, I'm forgetting, maybe somebody can look it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see what uh, the Apostle Paul said about it. But uh, we, it's something about we are encouraged until the Lord comes. But, um, but this is also very symbolic, right? Uh, there are some faith traditions, for example, the Roman Catholic Church that enters into uh, another dimension with, uh, with the communion uh, and uh, they have another opinion of, of uh, that, that, that when somebody is eating the bread, that there is a miracle that happens 
as they take it, and it literally becomes the body of Christ, and they drink the cup, and it literally becomes the blood of Jesus. Uh, so we, uh, we don't see that in the Word of God, but we, um, we believe that this is a power sim- powerful symbol of, uh, of remembering what Christ went through so that we could be saved. And we are not only remembering it, but we are partaking in it. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. Go ahead. That's it. Proclaim. You proclaim the Lord's death until... Okay, yeah, very good. Thank you. So, uh, so we are entering into a new dimension. Uh, in the same way with water baptism, it's symbolic of something that's happening. Same thing with communion. This is an outward sign of something that is spiritually already happening in God's people. We are partaking together in His death so that we can partake together in His life. That's a very powerful symbol. Any questions about that or so far? Okay, you guys are easy. Yes, Nisha. So, water baptism. Yes. Okay, uh, think about the thief on the cross for a moment. Okay, uh, the thief on the cross, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, it would have been terrible if Jesus would have said, uh, sorry, bro, we're still on the cross. Uh, we can't uh, baptize you in water, so I guess you're out of luck. No, uh, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So this is not something required for heaven. However, having said that, it is a serious commandment by the Lord, and it is something that every Christian should take seriously. And so if a person is refusing to be baptized, understanding that it's a commandment from the Lord, then there may be some deeper issues about why that is happening. So I would want to explore, uh, perhaps someone feels like they're unworthy, perhaps somebody feels like um, that they, or perhaps they don't understand why it's so important to the Lord, but it should be the Christian's first act of obedience to God. Does that make sense? Sure. As a general rule, I never want to twist anybody's arm to do anything. Do you know why? Because God doesn't twist anybody's arms. He never forces a... If somebody says, I don't want to be baptized, you know what? I'm not going to force anybody because that's going to cause greater damage. If there's a teenager who's got his mind on other things, you know what? Maybe the time's not right. Maybe you need to take obedience to Christ a little more seriously before we talk about this. And so that's okay. That's okay. And God is big enough to bring people to a point of conviction. Okay, very good. Let's move on to 
uh, what every Christian needs to do. All right, Every Christian needs, and we're going to look at a few things here that ought to be part of our daily life as believers. All right? Number one, daily Bible reading. The Bible, uh, they say it stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh, and that is, uh, the Bible has many pictures, word pictures of what it is, many symbols. One of them is the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the word which has come down from heaven. So there is a direct connection between the word of God and Jesus, the son of God. We're going to talk more about that um, when we talk about the second person of the Trinity. But uh, the Bible is our food, our spiritual food. Now, I don't know about you. I like food. (laughs) I have a hard time getting through a day without food. In fact, I have a hard time getting through half a day without food. I like to eat. My body enjoys that. My mouth enjoys that, right? So, uh, as much as our bodies like food, so our spirits should enjoy the Word of God even more. And we have to develop an appetite. Well, some people say, Pastor, I don't understand the Bible. Well, do you know how you begin to understand it? You read it. Some people say, I don't hear God speaking to me, Pastor. And uh, I saw somebody said, um, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible, because it's God's Word. If you want to hear God speak to you in an audible voice, read the Bible out loud, because this is the Word of God. All right, so... Let's dive into that a little bit more. So I want to talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Um, there, have been, uh, there has been a long, drawn-out attack on the trustworthiness of the Word of God in our culture, in the Western world, for probably the past two to three hundred years. There have been attacks against the Bible as the Word of God. And so we want to ask the question, can we trust that the Bible is not just another book? Is it worthy for us to really uh, to study as, as God's Word uh, every single day? And so uh, we could do a deep dive on this, uh, but I just want to keep it uh, as, as uh, easily, easily understood as possible. So um, when we talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible, there is this acronym, MAPS, which is, uh, these are the four basic reasons why we can trust the Bible. And each one of these is, is an hour-long study if you really want to go into it. But let's talk about them quickly. The manuscript evidence for the Bible. Can somebody tell me uh, how, how many manuscripts that we have for the Old Testament, the New Testament, and how does that compare to other ancient historical books? Does anybody know? Let's take, for example, the Odyssey by the Greek author Homer. Everybody studied that in high school, right? Greek mythology and, uh, and history books. So they say the manuscript evidence for the Iliad and Odyssey, these are ancient Greek textbooks, right? The manuscript evidence they have to this day, they have between 250 to 300 intact pieces of manuscripts for those books. Now, is there anybody who told you when you were studying these back in high school, if you can remember, did anybody say, we're not really sure if we can trust 
that this book is accurate because we don't really know. It's been passed down through all these generations and it's been interpreted so many times from language to language. Did anybody have any doubt that, that those ancient Greek texts were inaccurate? I don't think so. I never heard anything about that. And we only have between 250 to 300 ancient manuscripts of those documents. Compare that to the New Testament. Anybody want to take a guess how many manuscripts we have? Ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. We have about 15 to 17,000 ancient manuscripts, many of them dating back to the first century, to not long right after they were written. So by far, by far and away, there is greater manuscript evidence for the New Testament than for any other ancient book in the whole world. It's 2,000 years old, but we still have so much manuscript evidence. In fact, if you were to take every Bible that has been printed since the printing press, right? It was the first, Bible, the first book that was ever printed by the Gutenberg Press was the Gutenberg Bible. And imagine if you took every single printed Bible and you destroyed it in the world today. There would still be enough manuscripts to piece back together the Bible, the New Testament specifically, there would still be enough to piece it all back together because we have manuscript evidence for the New Testament better than any other ancient book. Uh, also, the Old Testament. Uh, many of you have heard of the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in Israel back in the 1940s. Um, there was a, a farmer who was out in the countryside tending some sheep, and he stumbled across a hole in the ground. And as he looked inside, he saw some clay pots and as he looked inside those clay pots, uh, he started pulling them out, and they were scrolls. They were scrolls that were written by the Hebrews, uh, and they, they dated these back to about 1,200 years, shortly after they had been written. They were from the book of Isaiah, from the prophet. So what, that was, what they did was they took that. It had been hidden for over 1,000 years. They didn't know about it. And they took those manuscripts, and they compared them to the ones that they had in storage. Does anybody want to take a guess how accurate that was? Nearly 100%. So separated by a thousand years, they brought them back together, and it was nearly perfect. That's only uh, from the book of Isaiah. So we have, again, we have greater manuscript evidence for the Bible than for any other ancient book. Archaeological evidence. So you would think, if you're reading the Bible, it names all of these people and places and things that occurred, you would think that you would find some of those things in the world today. Uh, what do you think? Do, you, do we see any of those things, of, of stories that happened in the Bible? Do we see them, evidence of them today? Yes, we do. And in fact, they're discovering more and more every single day. One of my favorite examples, very quickly, is, uh, is the city of Jericho. So for many years, people criticized the Bible because they could not find Jericho anywhere in the world. And... Uh, Oh, so one of the things about cities, as cities grow older, what happens is in the ancient world, the, instead, of, um, instead of excavating things like we do today, if a building fell down, they would just build on top of it. And if that, when that building falls down, they would build again on top of it. So cities turned into these giant mountains, basically giant mounds. And so they, they found one of these mounds over in the, in the Middle East somewhere, they started digging down into it, and what do you know? They discovered a city, and they began digging and excavating. This was back in the 70s, 
and, and they got to the edge of the city, and do you know what they found? They found massive walls, walls that were uh, 20 and 30 feet thick. And what was amazing as they began uncovering these walls is that normally if a, if a city with giant walls like that is attacked from the outside, which way would the wall fall down? It would fall down on top of the city, right? From the out, if you're attacking a wall, it's going to fall down. But in this case, they couldn't explain why, but these walls had fallen down from the inside out. And uh, as they began studying, they discovered that this was the ancient city, Jericho. And this was archaeological evidence that the story in the Bible was right. Who, who would have thunk? Uh, but after, after much criticism, they discovered the city. Again and again, we find so much archaeological evidence to prove the Bible is true. Uh, thirdly, the P from maps is prophetic evidence. Can somebody give me an example of prophecies that have come true in the Word of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, there was, there was um, these prophecies all over the Bible about Israel coming back together after, uh, after a certain amount of time. Did I run out of space? Probably. But, um, but nobody thought that was possible. That's never happened before. A nation dispersed, gone off into slavery, and then come back together? That's never happened. Never happened ever in history, except when the Bible predicted it. And so the Bible has a 100% accuracy rate when it comes to prophecy. The only prophecies that haven't come true are the ones that haven't happened yet. And so the Bible has a great track record. Um, King Tyre is, a, is an example of that. Also, um, uh, Alexander the Great was prophesied in the Bible, and they actually showed him the prophecies about himself. It's an incredible uh, evidence. There's a whole study that could be done about prophecy. And finally, the statistical evidence. When we talk about the statistical evidence, what we're talking about is how many different authors. Does anybody know how many different authors wrote the Bible? 40, 40 different authors over a time span of, anybody know? Or more, maybe closer to 2,000. We don't know about the earliest ones. But could you imagine trying to organize that? in your own strength? Okay, so uh, I have an idea. I'm going to write a religious textbook. And so for the next 2,000 years, I'm going to plan for 40 different people, and I want them to write about one central theme and one central topic, which is the love of God towards sinful humanity. And yet, that's exactly what we have. What are the chances? Uh, And that all of these things would come together and would have a central theme, a central thrust, and a consistent message from front to back. It's, it's uh, statistically impossible. So these are the reasons why we can trust that the Word of God is not just another book. Any questions about that? Okay, let's read about what the Bible has to say about itself. Uh, one of the things that you're going to learn as you study the Bible, something so important, is you have to let the Bible speak for itself. We have a tendency, we all do, to try to explain things in a way that makes sense to us, and and that's a good thing to do. But don't ever take the place of the Bible on its own terms. So that's why 
uh, we want to let the Bible speak for itself. So we've got five scriptures there. Is that print big enough for you to read? Okay, Patrick's going to start with the top, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and powerful. You know, it's still alive and powerful. This is uh, in a way that is more living and more powerful than any other book that you're ever going to read. The Word of God has power to change you. That's what that means. Isaiah 55, 11. Stephen, you want to read that? In other words, God's Word is effective. It has efficiency. It is able to accomplish God's Word. Taya, can you read 2 Timothy 3.16? Let me see if I can zoom in on this. No, I can't. Oh, yes, I can. Okay, Scripture is given by inspiration. Does anybody know what, or can we define what inspiration means? God breathed, exactly. So obviously we have men putting pen to paper, putting ink on the, on the scroll, but it is God's breath, it is His Spirit, inspiration. That's the Spirit of God in man that is causing him to write. So that's what makes the Bible different from every other book. It is an inspired book, and no other book on this planet is inspired in the way that the Bible is. Okay, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. Amanda, can you get that? If you want to learn more about the power of the Bible, the entire book, or the entire chapter, Psalm 19, is an entire chapter all about the power of the Bible and what it does, its effectiveness and its efficiency in our life. It goes on and on, Psalm 19. It's one of the longest in the Bible, the longest chapters, and it's all about the Word of God and what it can accomplish for us. Okay, and finally, uh, Tornisha, can you read Second Peter one twenty one. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so again, this is the idea of inspiration. That uh, this was not just men writing uh, what they wanted to write, but this is men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Word of God is worthy of our attention and our study. Okay. Uh, let's all open your Bibles, if you have one. We're going to look very quickly at the table of contents. If you want to know about the Bible, it's a good idea to get kind of a roadmap of what it is all about. And if you turn to the table of contents in your Bible, you can. Uh, there are other ways to break it down. This is not necessarily you know, the only way, but this is an easy way for us to understand. So, from Genesis until 
Judges. Genesis until Judges. Am I have that right? No, I don't. From Genesis... Oh, you're in an alphabetical list. Let's see if there's an, another one. Oh. Can I see? Alphabetical index. Oh, thank you. So, uh, good. Yes, so from Genesis... Story of the creation, beginnings, that's what the word Genesis means, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all of those are considered historical books. In other words, telling the stories and narratives of what took place. And yes, there's a lot of other things in there. But moving forward from there, we have another section, starting with Job. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are more of uh, ancient poet, po poetry books. They're poetic in nature. So uh, it, it has to do with how do we translate the Bible. It's important for us to know what is the purpose of these books. And uh, so we don't take them as literally as we do historical books, for example. So some places in Job or some places in Ecclesiastes where there's a jaded writer, for example, an old man Solomon who's been through uh, the difficulties of life and he's, he's complaining about vanity. And, and so it's important to understand where he's coming from. He's, this is not necessarily a historical narrative, but it's, it's, uh, it's a different purpose. Okay, then, so starting from Isaiah through the end of the Old Testament, Isaiah... Uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are considered the major prophets. Be, and really, it doesn't have to do with some are more important than others. It just has to do with their prophecies are greater in abundance. We call them the major prof prophets versus the minor prophets, which would be Hosea through uh, Malachi. And these are smaller books. These are not as many prophecies we call those the minor prophets. So then, starting in the New Testament, we have the first four books, which are called the gospel accounts, the good news accounts. These are eyewitness accounts, and if you read them straight through, you will discover that there's a lot of repeating stories. And the reason that you find repeating stories is because it's the same story told by four different people. The first three are called the synoptic gospels, the last one, the book of John, is different than the synoptic. Synoptic simply means eyewitness. They were seen by the eyes, and so they, were, they tried to be a faithful uh, representation from three different people about what happened in the life of Jesus. John, uh, his gospel was written much later on in his life, so he's had some time to think about and ponder the life of Jesus, <clears throat> and his gospel is much more focused on the miracles of Jesus, and it's really focused on his supernatural um, uh, acts that he did on the earth. He spends a much greater portion of his book talking about the Last Supper, the prayers for his disciples, and for us, uh, focusing on that, that last night, the last 24 hours of his life. Uh, the book of Acts kind of stands alone. I didn't include it on my list here. But the book of Acts stands alone as a history of the New Testament church. 
And then the rest of the New Testament, Romans through Jude, are what are called epistles. The word epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. A letter that was written by an apostle. Most of them written, of course, by the Apostle Paul, but also we have letters that are written from the brother of Jesus, James, uh, Peter, and of course John. And uh, these are letters written by these apostles to various churches in the world. And then, uh, finally, in a category all by itself, the book of Revelation, (coughs) which, if you know, if you've read it, it's pretty trippy. (laughs) It is, uh, we did a whole study on it a couple of years back, and it has to do with the end times. It's uh, up to a lot of interpretation. It is very helpful if you know the major prophets, if you know them well, because a lot of the symbology in Revelation comes directly from uh, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and others. Okay, any questions about the Bible? This is our food for our spiritual lives. The historical was Genesis through um, Esther, I think, the one right before Job. Job is where it starts the poetic books. Uh, There is some question as to whether, uh, you know, Job is more of a narrative that was told or if he truly was a historical person, but um, they say that Job is actually the very first book that was ever written down. It's the oldest of all the books in in the Old Testament. So Job through Song of Solomons are the poetic books. Did I get everything? Okay. The Bible truly is an inexhaustible resource. The Bible is easy enough to understand that a child can read it. It's accessible. But it's also so complex and so deep that you could study your whole life and you could write ten doctrinal uh, uh, theses on it and still not get everything out of it. In fact, the Word of God is what we will is how we will begin to understand the character of God in eternity. And uh, we do, as a church, we do have a daily reading plan. Um, and if you're not hooked up on that already, we can help you get connected to that. We like to read the, the Word of God together as a church. So second thing that every Christian needs to do on a daily basis is how the Bible describes ceaseless prayers. This comes directly from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Patrick, you want to read that? (laughs) Pretty simple, right? That's where we get the idea. Ceaseless prayers. Pray without ceasing. Well, that uh, leads us to a very obvious question. What is your question that you're thinking right now? How do you do that? (laughs) Pray without ceasing. Does that mean that that we need to uh, move to the top of the mountain and uh, uh, quit our jobs and uh, leave our possessions behind so that we can spend 24 hours a day on our face? And No, that's not what that means. <laughs> to pray without ceasing, it simply means that we ought to always have an attitude or a connection toward God. That means that in everything that's happening in our lives, that we can remain connected to Him in our thoughts and in our prayers. And so even if we are busy with other things, like teaching a Bible study, I can still have a prayerful attitude of connection with my Father, right? Uh, Luke 18, verse 1. This is a parable that's worthy of our study, but we don't have time for it tonight. 
Stephen, would you read that scripture? Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray, and that should be taught. Mm-hmm. So prayer is not only something we should continually do, but what we're going to have to fight, the, the battle, is that we can lose heart in prayer. We can be discouraged in prayer. And why do we get discouraged? Because we don't get an answer to our prayer, at least the answer that we expected. And so when that happens, uh, we lose heart, we get discouraged, and then we stop praying. And then it's no wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. And so that is a vicious circle that some Christians have caught it, got themselves caught into, is they say, well, God never answers my prayer, so I'm never going to pray. When really it ought to be, I need to keep praying so that God will answer my prayer. Okay, Colossians 4.2, which says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. That is a very important piece of prayer, is gratitude. If you are not approaching God in gratitude, you're doing it wrong. Okay? All of our relationship with God begins with, I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell. (laughs) But God, you've shown me kindness. And because of that, I believe that you care about me and that I can come to you boldly and let you know about my needs. Jesus gave us a, 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 a model prayer that we can use um, that is not meant to be used as a mindless mantra, but is meant to be used as a prayer outline. Give us this day our daily bread. Our Father who art in heaven, uh, hallowed be thy name, right? This is the, what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And what has happened to many people is they, they pray the words, but it becomes very hollow. And uh, it just becomes a mantra of mindlessness. Uh, but, but it ought to be... Um, and we're going to study more about that uh, when we talk about Revelation, so I don't want to take up too much time here. The third thing that we must all be a part of as Christians is a Greek word called koinonia. Uh, the best translation that we have is fellowship, or we could also, this is the same word where we get our English words like community uh, or commonality when we come together. That's what the word koinonia means. In the book of Acts, it says that they had fellowship one with another. They had koinonia. They had relationship. They were together in the bonds of fellowship. So, uh, Amanda, can you read Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was written almost 2,000 years ago. So if they thought the day was coming, uh, shouldn't we also? <laughs> After 2,000 years, the day is even closer than it was for them. And so uh, what do we need to encourage one another, to exhort one another? We need not to forsake the assembling, the gathering together, the koinonia, the fellowship. See, there is power when God's people come together. We're going to study that when we talk about the church, but this is a crucial part of any person's spiritual growth, is to be gathered together with God's people in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what brings uh, spiritual growth. This is what brings uh, revelation many times that we would never get on our own. Uh, So then the fourth thing that we all need to be involved with is what Jesus referred to as being salt 
and light. And what he's really talking about symbolically, he's talking about evangelism. Um, evangelism has become a, a weirdly misunderstood word. Evangelical. We, we are called an evangelical church, which is uh, in contrast to maybe a, a Roman Catholic church. But what does it mean to be evangelical? Can somebody tell me what's a good definition for that word? Anybody? Have a guess? There's a clue right in the middle of that word. Angel. What, what's an angel? A messenger. That's right. And so to be evangelical means to be God's messenger. And what is the message that we're trying to bring? Sorry? The gospel. The gospel is the message. And who is it that we are delivering this message to? Sinners. Sinners like us. We, uh, it's not that we have, uh, uh, we, we have reached some high pinnacle of humanity. No, we're just, I'm a beggar, and I found a place where to find some bread. And let me share with you, another beggar, uh, I, you can be filled, my friend, if you come with me and follow Jesus. This is what evangelism is. It's sharing the message of the gospel. Okay, Matthew 5, uh, this is where Jesus Uh, This is from the Sermon on the Mount where he speaks about the salt and the light. And he says, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt, of course, is a potent force. In Whatever salt touches, it changes. Whether it's used as a preservative or whether it's used as flavoring in in our seasoning or whether it's used, uh, even the ancient Egyptians used it to make their mummies, right? But whatever salt touches, the chemical properties, it changes everything it touches. And he says, you ought to be my salt. You ought to change every situation. Every, every situation you enter into, uh, if you are going into the world, you are going to... Think about Jesus. Did he ever go into a room and not change it immediately? He changed it just by showing up. And he says, in the same way, uh, that you, my, the people of God, ought to be the salt... Secondly, you are the light of the world. Verse 14, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Can you say good works? What is it that the world is supposed to see? Your good works. That is the light of your life. And uh, when they see good works, it says they will glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, let's talk about transformation for a second. So, uh, this is a critical part of our lives. Again, anything that Jesus touches will be transformed. Okay? And the reason that's important is because there's a whole lot of people in our world, in churches all across America and around the world, and they're sitting in church services just like you are tonight, but their lives have not been changed. They're still the same old person that they've always been. And for us, those of us who are in the faith, this is a mark that we have been touched by God, that He is transforming us. All right? What does it mean to be transformed? Can somebody give me a definition? Okay, yep. Did you have something? Okay. 
So you can see it right there in that word, trans, which means to, to be radically changed, and a form, to be changing in form, right? To be changing who and what we are. There's a couple of illustrations. Uh, one of them is a birth. So the Bible says that we are born again. Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the first birth that we all experienced was a natural birth, a birth from our mothers. We came out of a womb, and uh, Jesus describes that as a birth in water. But there's a second birth that is critical for us. If we want to know God, if we want to see the kingdom of God, it is the spiritual birth. It is a new birth. And there are some parallels that I wanted to just note with you between the natural birth and the supernatural birth. A couple of things to consider. First of all, both your natural birth and your supernatural birth, you had very little to do with it, right? It was the work of other people before you were around, and very similarly, when it comes to the supernatural birth, there were forces at work, there was prayers of your ancestors, there were people who have been contending for you. The Holy Spirit, for generations before you ever showed up, was working to order life in such a way that would bring you to a point of decision, right? And so, just in the same way, you and I, we can't take credit for our natural birth. We also can't take credit for our supernatural birth. It's not because I figured it out, right? No, uh, I simply stumbled into the kingdom, and the way that, uh, that it's described in Dante's, there's a, you know, the, 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 the sign over the door as people are entering into heaven. It says, enter ye all who will come. But then you turn around and look as you're coming in, and on the back side it says, chosen from the beginning of time. We don't fully understand all of that, do we? But, uh, but God's, God is the one who initiated your salvation in the same way. So secondly, uh, the, the new birth is similar to the nat- natural birth in that there was a time in your life that you were in a very tight spot for about nine months, right? You were very much constricted and in darkness without any agency of your own, right? So this is very symbolic of our lives before Christ. Before we were born, it was not a good experience, right? We were, we were held and kept in a dark place where we had no agency on our own. Similarly, this is symbolic of our life before Christ. Before we were born again, our lives were very constricted. We were, the Bible says, we were slaves to our sin. And we had very little agency over ourselves. We thought that we were independent from every force in the world when, in fact, we were slaves to the father of this world, the enemy of our soul. And he had us bound, didn't he? We were very restricted by that. And similarly with the natural birth, there are, you know, doctors who have studied this, they say that there's about, uh, about 500 changes that take place instantly that that child comes out of the mother's womb. My mom was just telling me uh, about one of those changes that uh, before a baby is born, obviously it's, it, there's no breath in its lungs because it's in fluid for nine months, right? And so the lungs are also filled with fluid. So it means that the baby has to receive oxygen from another source. Oxygen is coming from the mother's bloodstream through the umbilical cord and into that baby's body, right? 
And the moment that that umbilical cord is cut, the baby coughs and cries, the fluid comes out, and all of a sudden oxygen is now coming through the lungs for the very first time. That's just one example of hundreds of changes that have to take place in a very short span of time for that baby to survive. This is also true with our supernatural birth. The moment of salvation, we repent of our sins, we confess, we start on a new tract with God, and instantly there are about a thousand things that happen in a moment. You know, we're, we're just sitting there like, God, I'm a sinner, please save me. But we don't realize all of the transactions that have to happen in the supernatural realm in order for us to survive spiritually. Imagine your destination was once hell. In a moment, your eternal destination changes to glory with God. In a moment of time, your father, you used to be the son of your father, the devil. And in a moment of time, God came down and signed the adoption papers. And you were adopted into the family. One moment of time. You see what I'm saying? So thousands of uh, uh, on one side, you're going to stand before God and you're going to be guilty. You're going you're to pay a price for all the sins that you've committed in your life. And in one moment, the price that Jesus paid on the cross is applied to your account. And all of a sudden, God no longer sees your sins. In the same way, so many changes in an instant of time. Also, the new birth is like the natural birth in that it's only the beginning. In, when a baby is born, it's a miracle. But it's only the beginning. It's the very first stage of life. And from that, uh, we've, if you have children, you've watched your children grow and progress and change every single day and uh, grow up and, and learn things. And it's the same way with our spiritual lives. That that's only the beginning. If, if you go to the altar and you repent and you stay that way for the next five years, something wrong with you. You're disobedient. Your life's not changing. There's something wrong with that picture because every child of God is a child that is growing, maturing in our faith. And so we are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I have another illustration that I love, and I found two fantastic little YouTube videos that I hope you'll be able to see very well. This is the hatching of a caterpillar. Are you ready for this? So I'm going to try, try to uh, walk you through this. Come watch this, Addy. This is two minutes, but it's well worth it. Milkweed is a critical component to the birth of a monarch butterfly. They will only lay their eggs on this particular plant for some reason. When it's time for the thing to hatch, out it comes. And the first thing it does is it eats the egg that it was just in in order to gain strength to find its next meal. The goal of a caterpillar is singular in nature. Eat. 
Eat and grow. Eat a little more. Get a little fatter. The thing has no eyeballs. It can't see. It only has those two little tentacles. And when it gets fat enough, hangs itself from a branch. Its outer skin comes off. And what you're looking at now has no structure, no skeleton, no bones. It's basically a sack full of jelly. This sack full of jelly grows in outer skin that hardens. And in about two weeks, that little coating full of jelly transforms. This is what they call a metamorphosis. Meta means all-encompassing. Morphosis means it has morphed, it has completely changed into something completely different. And now, it's a beautiful butterfly, as they say. Now, i got one more video for you to watch. And this is... This is those same butterflies, but now they've become mature. One out of every three generations of monarch butterflies are what's called... Methuselah generations, which means that they live, uh, the, the average life of a butterfly is about five months, okay? But this generation, every third generation, happens to be eight or nine months. So that's like if a human being would live to 180 or 190. Every third generation lives longer because that third generation has a migration that goes back to this one forest in Mexico. Check this out. It's one of nature's great migrations and also one of nature's great unsolved mysteries. Millions of monarch butterflies journey to the same place every year, some traveling more than 3,000 miles to get there. But it's also a place where none of these butterflies has ever been before. However, before we could fully appreciate their Herculean travel odyssey, we had to first discover where it was they were going. These distinctive orange and black butterflies, the monarchs, are seen over large swaths of the United States. But every winter, they disappear, and we had no idea where they go until 1975. And then we discovered they were vacationing in... Right here, this is one of the reserves, Rosario. It is magical here. In central Mexico, some 60 miles west of Mexico City, forests of tall Oyamel fir trees, pines, and oaks provide the resort of choice for most vacationing monarchs. Butterflies from across the eastern United States and Canada congregate in 14 different small reserves nestled high in the mountains. The forests provide shelter from storms and high winds, but primarily the trees offer the warmth. Butterflies cling to trunks and branches in numbers so great, trees disappear under a blanket of wings. On occasion, as many as 24 million monarchs have been clustered in a single acre of reserve. Doing an 
endless sea of butterflies. And the numbers are impressive, ranging from 70 to 100 million in recent years. But that's a fraction of the estimated 1 billion monarchs littering in Mexico in the 1990s. Storms, extreme temperatures, habitat loss, pesticides have all played a part in their decline. And yet, they persist. This great insect migration is even more impressive and mysterious when you realize we have no idea how they know where to go. The monarchs here in Mexico are called the Methuselah generation, living eight to nine months, or the equivalent of about 600 human years. Born in the United States and Canada, none have ever been here before. But somehow, they managed to fly to Mexico, survive the winter, and start the trip back north. They won't complete the journey. They will mate, give birth, and die. The next generation will revert to the typical monarch life expectancy of about five weeks, as will the following generation and the one after that. It is that third generation, after the Methuselahs, that will finally arrive at the birthplace of their great-great-grandparents. It will be yet another generation of monarchs, the Methuselahs, who return to these forests next year. And again, they will navigate their way south using some unknown internal genetic GPS system. Perhaps years ago, the local Mexicans had the best explanation for the mystery of the migration. Back when we in North America were still wondering where the butterflies went in the winter, the Mexicans were wondering where they came from. And because the monarch's arrival was close to the time the locals celebrated the Day of the Dead, many came to believe the butterflies were the spirits of departed ancestors. Okay. Well, you can forget about that last part. But <laughs> here's what I want you to catch from this. Remember where it started, that little egg with that little blind worm that crawled out that wiggled around and did nothing but eat for a certain amount of time. And when I think about that, I think about myself before Christ. Very focused on self, very blind to, my, to spiritual realities. And when that little creature goes into that cocoon and comes out, it's still got the same DNA. So it could still have the same name, but it's completely transformed. And this also explains the transformation between sinner to saint. And that butterfly is capable of doing things that the caterpillar cannot imagine. It comes out with colors that it's never seen before. It comes out, it's able to flap wings that it could never flap before. It has eyeballs now that it couldn't even see with before, right? In the same way, Jesus said, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. So we are uh, in Christ, we are being born into something that we have no idea we're capable of. Make sense, everybody? Any questions? Okay, we're almost done. Some warnings as we close. Danger ahead. I want to say that this Christian journey is the most difficult thing that you will ever do. It is the most difficult thing that anyone takes on and in some ways, it's also the easiest thing that you ever do. Because when we give our lives to Christ, we are surrendering ourselves and we say, God, my life is yours. And it means 
that I'm going to do whatever you say. A truly surrendered heart is actually really easy. It's, it's simple to live that way. It's to say, God, will you want me to do this? Yeah? Okay, I'll do it. God, you don't want me to do that? Okay, no problem, I won't do that. Right? In theory, it's very simple. But what we also realize is that there are some major enemies that we're going to run into, and it is also one of the hardest things that anyone ever decides to do. So here, I want to give you the three enemies that you are going to face as you walk on this Christian journey. The first enemy is the one that we live in. It is the world, or maybe more more, uh, accurately put, it's the world system as it is now. We're not talking about the physical nature that's not uh, aligned against us. We're talking about the nature of the world around us. We're talking about the world system because the Bible reveals to us that the world as it is now is controlled and under the authority of another one of our enemies, which is the, the devil. So listen to what John says about the world, 1 John two fifteen to 17. Oscar, can you read that for us? Okay, so there were three lusts that are the, the three temptations that were listed there in verse 16. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the three things that align with the reason why Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It said that they saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. They saw it and it looked good. That was lust of the eyes. They said that it also uh, was desirable, that it was something that... Uh, by the way, they were eating it. It had to do with their fleshly hunger, the lust of the flesh. And not only that, but the pride of life. When the serpent spoke to them, he said, oh, um, the, the, God is withholding this fruit from you because he knows it will make you wise. And that's the pride of life. Oh, God's holding back on me, and so this has the potential to make me better than I am. That's the pride of life. These are the three temptations that we still face every day that the world presents to us. It's the same three that the enemy presented to Christ in his time of temptation. Uh, cast yourself off the pinnacle. Uh, make these rocks into bread. Pride, uh, lust of the flesh. Uh, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. That's the pride of life. Uh, and all of those things, those temptations, are the things that will drag us into temptation. All right? That's, so that is enemy number one. Enemy number Two, the greatest, one of the greatest enemies is the inner me. The, what the Bible describes as our flesh, our carnal nature. Uh, Romans 8, verses 1, 5, and 13. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, the old King James says, mortify. You mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. So your flesh is working against God. You have to realize that. 
you have a part of you that does not want to serve God that wants to stay in bed on Sunday morning, right? <laughs> There's a part of you that wants to see to it that you will be destroyed. The third enemy, of course, is the enemy of our souls, the father of lies. His name is Satan, uh, formerly known as uh, an angel of God, but has fallen. And so the Bible describes him who is striving and is strategizing against the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil does not devour those who are strong in their faith. He devours the weak ones, just like a lion on the plains in Africa. Uh, he's looking for the easy snack, right? He's not looking to chase the big healthy gazelle. He's looking for the one who's sick and old and got a broken leg. And while the, all the others are running, this one's straggling behind. That's an easy meal for that lion, isn't it? And so the devil is looking for you in your weakness. He doesn't fight fair. He doesn't wait till you're strong and prayed up. He waits until you are weak and tired and fed up and frustrated, and then he moves in. Okay? So uh, that's why the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. God has not left us alone in this fight, but he has given us armor. You do the study in Ephesians chapter 6 to learn what that armor is. We're going to study that in our lesson on a deeper prayer and, and uh, relationship with God. James 4 verse 7 gives us the secret against the enemy. Therefore, submit. Everybody say submit. Submit to God. Resist. Everybody say resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the surefire way to get the devil off your back. Submit to God. Resist the enemy. They work in tandem. You can't do one without the other. If you think you're going to resist the devil without being submitted to God, you're in trouble because he's stronger and smarter than you are. If you think you, if you're submitted to God, but you're just letting the devil run over you, you're not resisting him, you're also in trouble. But they work together. Submit to God, resist the devil. There is nothing that he can do to overcome when we are submitted to God and resistant against him. Any questions about that? Okay, then we've reached the end of our lesson tonight. And it's time for me to give you your homework. We have a memorization verse which is Romans 6, 23. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, some of you already know that. But uh, we wanna, we're going to work through. By the end of this eight weeks, you're going to have at least eight scriptures memorized. So by the time we get back here next Friday, uh, be ready to uh, say that out loud in front of the group. All right? <laughs> okay, the other piece of your homework is the Gospel of Matthew, all right? Pastor, that's a lot of reading. No, it's really not. It's 28 chapters. That means in a week's time, if you just read four chapters a day, you'll get through the whole thing in, uh, before our next meeting. So the, the entire Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to read that. I want you to read it. I don't want you to, to study it like verse by verse and... and Word by word, otherwise it might take you too long. I want you to just read through it and, and uh, consume the entire book from an overarching perspective. Get the story of it. And uh, uh, 
I was actually leaning to do a different direction. I, I was going to have you guys read another book written by a Christian author, uh, but I think it's critical for us just to read the Bible, just to read, read it as it is, read the words of Jesus, study the life of Jesus, <clears throat> because that's where we find our life. All right? So any questions tonight? Anything that's not clear? Wonderful. Let's stand then as we close in prayer. Next week, we'll begin looking at the topic of theology, uh, which is the study of God, and we'll be talking about God the Father, and there's a lot to go into. Uh, also, as you're reading the Bible, as you're reading the book of Matthew, keep, keep a notepad right next to you as you're reading. Uh, if you have a question or you're curious about something, make sure to write it down. We'll come back together uh, next week, and we'll have a time that we can discuss any, anything that's not clear or not understood from the book of Matthew. All right? Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, for this new believers, new membership class. We're praying, God, that you would help us, God, that you would give us strength. Bless the reading of your word as we study it and as we consume these things, as we ponder them, as we contemplate all of these truths, God, that you would renew our minds and bring us closer to you, God. I thank you for these these, uh, precious souls that have made a decision to follow you with all of their hearts. And we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you guys tonight.